0: You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 17. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's episode of the show is a continuation of our ongoing series from field biologist to filmmaker. In the first installment of this series, which we released as Eyes on Conservation episode nine, we talked about the importance of the story outline. In this episode, we'll be talking about camera equipment and shooting techniques. I'll also be sharing some anecdotes from my experience working on my first documentary film, Scavenger Hunt. This film is about the recovery of the California condor and the issue of lead poisoning in wildlife. It's actually a good fit for this month's theme of vulture conservation. So if you haven't already, definitely check out the film. In addition to helping with this guide, it will also provide some important information about conserving vultures here in the American West. So I'm gonna jump right in here where we left off and assume that you already have a completed story outline that's been shared with all the people who you want to be involved in your film project. If you have crafted an interesting story and pitched it in a compelling way in your outline, then you should have a crew of characters and volunteers that are excited and energized and ready to help make your story idea a reality. But how to proceed from here? This is the next question. Um, It's time to start shooting, but this can be a daunting task to jump into if you don't have much production experience. This is exactly the situation that I was in when I started working on Scavenger Hunt, my first documentary film project. Um, I had a whole crew of volunteers who were excited to help out and who were energized about my story idea but I had basically zero actual production experience. Uh, the only film production course that I had taken in college, um, we had shot everything on 16 millimeter film. So as far as uh, uh, producing something on video, uh, I didn't even know where to start. Uh, so I had to start from scratch. Not only did I need to learn shooting techniques, I needed to buy a video camera. Now this is a situation that I find fewer and fewer aspiring filmmakers in as time goes by. I started shooting for Scavenger Hunt back in 2008. Uh, this was right at the cusp of the DSLR revolution that has taken over digital filmmaking. At the time I owned two cameras. Uh, one was my old Nikon film-based SLR and the other was an old Hi8 video camera that my parents had used to shoot home videos when I was a kid. So without question i needed a new video camera and dslrs weren't yet a viable option for shooting hd video at that time i ended up buying the canon hv30 it's a great little camera a very reasonable price Um, it's the, the hv30 is an hdv camcorder meaning that it records 1080i resolution footage to standard dv tapes while a tape-based camera would not be on the top of my recommendation list at this point, at the time it seemed like a pretty good option. Digital videotapes are pretty much obsolete at this point, uh, only a few years later, but there are still lots of cameras on the market that are very similar to the HV30 as far as the quality of footage um, that, that they're outputting. These days you can buy a small HD camcorder that records to an internal hard drive or SD cards or both, uh, for even less money than what I spent on my HV30, which is about six or $700. Of course, what you want to do with your final film is going to play a role in the decision of what type of camera to shoot with. If you're producing something that will be released online and rarely, if ever, shown up on a big screen, the HD camcorder route might be your best option. This is especially true if you have limited shooting experience. One of the huge benefits of these consumer-level camcorders is that so many of the functions of the camera are automated. Many of these camcorders have good autofocus systems, auto exposure, auto white balance. You can automate almost everything so that all you have to think about when you're out in the field is framing your shot and pressing the record button. Even if you have higher ambitions for your film and want a higher quality camera for most of your shooting, having one of these small camcorders in your gear bag uh, just for run and gun situations can be a really good idea. Now as I mentioned earlier, a lot has changed in the world of digital video since I started shooting for Scavenger Hunt back in 2008. There has been a revolution in digital filmmaking since that time, to be sure, and this revolution has been focused on using DSLR cameras designed primar- primarily for still photography to capture film-like digital video images. Now, what's the difference between a camcorder designed specifically for video capture and a DSLR? It turns out there's quite a lot that is different between these two types of shooting devices. One of the most important differences is the size of the image sensor. The image sensor is the equivalent of the film stock in a film camera. It's the point where all of the light is focused to create your image. One of the most fundamental differences between a small camcorder and a DSLR is that most camcorders have a very small image sensor, whereas DSLRs have a substantially larger image sensor. This turns out to be pretty important for a number of factors, including the overall quality of the image that you're capturing. With a smaller image sensor, even if your resolution is the same, you most likely are going to end up with a noticeably lower quality image compared to something shot with a larger sensor. Part of the reason for this is that with a smaller image sensor, the same amount of data is being crammed into a much smaller space. But another part of the reason for this is tied to a difference in the overall aesthetic of the image. The size of the image sensor of your camera affects the depth of field that you are able to achieve in your shot. Depth of field is a measurement of the area within your shot that is in focus. With a larger image sensor, it is a whole lot easier to reduce your depth of field and create a shot in which there is only a narrow range of area that will be in focus. Depth of field is also correlated to both the aperture that you're shooting at and your zoom range. But as a whole, we're going to have a whole lot more control over our depth of field when working with a larger image sensor like the one found in a DSLR. So why is this beneficial and what effect does it have on the quality of the image? Although it does not have an impact on the resolution of the image, it does have an impact on the perceived quality of the image for the viewer. This is because, as viewers, we are used to seeing a more narrow depth of field in higher-end productions. Pay close attention next time you go to the theater, and you'll notice that in many scenes, this narrow depth of field is used as a tool to isolate the main subject of a shot. This helps the viewer know what they should be paying attention to within the shot. Sometimes the background will be just slightly out of focus, a sort of subtle hint as to where your attention should be focused. And sometimes the background will be completely blurred out, giving the viewer no choice as to what section of the screen they should be paying attention to. So having the ability to make adjustments to your depth of field can actually be a great way to direct the attention of your viewers and show them what's important within a shot. It also provides the perception of a higher quality image because viewers associate these depth of field effects with higher end productions. Uh, Although most viewers are of course doing this uh, unconsciously, it, it is still happening. Now, changing the size of a camera's image sensor affects more than just your control over depth of field. It also plays an important role in the angle of view that you will get with different lenses, as well as your camera's sensitivity to light. If you will be shooting in low light conditions, a DSLR system is often a good way to go. That large image sensor is able to capture much higher quality images in low light conditions than any camcorder. That is, unless you need to record in extreme low light conditions, in which case, and this is a side note here, you'll want a camera with a removable IR filter. All cameras have an infrared filter for normal shooting conditions, Uh, but if you want to capture images in the absence of almost all visible light, some cameras have an option that allows you to basically slide this filter out from in front of the image sensor so you can capture images in infrared. Unfortunately, camera companies are not legally allowed to offer this option on a camera unless it's branded as a pro-type camera. I guess they're concerned about people using IR cameras to spy on people. Um, This has not always been the case. My old Hi8 video camera actually has this functionality, and it's one of the main reasons that I've kept this camera in my toolkit. Another benefit of a DSLR system is the fact that it is an interchangeable lens system. The lens plays a huge role in the end quality of the image that you capture, and with a small camcorder, you're basically stuck with the built-in zoom lens. You get what you pay for as far as lenses go. They tend to hold their value uh, extremely well. So if you buy an inexpensive camcorder, you're also buying an inexpensive lens. With a DSLR, however, you have a whole lot more freedom when it comes to lenses. If you don't like the look of the kit lens that comes with the camera, you can go out and buy any lens you want um, and have a whole lot more control over your image. And there are lots of lenses out there to choose from. Not only do you have all of the modern lenses, um, which all have electrical connections to the DSLR camera body, allowing you to control the aperture and focus automatically, but you also have older lenses uh, that don't have these electrical connections to choose from. And if you're comfortable adjusting focus and aperture manually, which a lot of videographers actually prefer to shoot in this way, you can get great deals on older lenses that can give you really beautiful images. Of course, the types of lenses that will be compatible with your DSLR will be dependent on the model of camera body that you choose, Uh, but we'll get into that a bit later in the episode. And now we get to the downside of utilizing a DSLR system for shooting video, which is that most DSLRs are not designed with video in mind. This has been changing in recent years, with more DSLRs including features that are appealing to videographers, but especially if you're working with a DSLR body that is a few years old, your video functionality will be a bit limited. There are lots of components to this, but just the simple ergonomics of the DSLR body is one to consider, as well as specific features that we have come to expect with dedicated video cameras like focus and exposure assist. One of the most important factors to consider, however, is the compression that is used to save the actual video file to your SD or CF card. Almost all DSLRs record to H.264 footage. Uh, Some limit resolution to 720p, some go to full 1080p, and there are variations as far as the frame rates that you're able to capture at. It's nice to have the option to record full 1080p footage at 60 frames per second, which is twice the frame rate of standard video, since this allows you to slow the action down two times. But this is a, a, a functionality that is a bit rare to see, especially in some of the older DSLRs. So, you have several options when confronted with the limitations presented by shooting video with your DSLR. One is to work within these limitations, and possibly supplement your shooting with a second camera, which you could use in situations when you need those video camera-specific functions such as autofocus and auto-exposure. Another option would be to look into buying a hybrid, a camera that has many of the video functionalities that we've discussed, but also has some of these benefits of the DSLR mirrorless interchangeable lens system cameras have become increasingly popular over the past few years and we now have every major camera company releasing a camera uh, that fits within this category this type of system gives you the freedom of an interchangeable lens system along with the ease of use and some of the automatic video functions of a standard video camera recorder now, there are a wide array of options in this category at this point, um, including cameras with full-frame sensors, that is, image sensors that are the equivalent of 35 millimeter film. Now, this is the type of camera that I currently use as my primary camera. I bought a Panasonic GH3 before I started shooting for our half-hour documentary, Bluebird Man, and I've been very happy with it. Uh, It it has good options for compression formats. It has a micro four-thirds size image sensor, which is about half the size of a full-frame 35-millimeter size sensor. Um, and, and I actually like this, uh, the size of this image sensor for shooting wildlife because it gives me a, a, basically a 2x crop factor, which means uh, it, it gets me in closer to my subject with less telephoto range on a lens. There there are two downsides to this camera which I'll mention here. One is that uh, uh this this camera, the GH3 as well as as all of these mirrorless interchangeable lens system cameras, um they utilize an electronic viewfinder as opposed to a standard DSLR which has an optical viewfinder. Um, and, and this this means that the image that you see on the screen when you look through the viewfinder um, is, is not the perfect optical image that you would get with a true DSLR, which can make it difficult um, to get that perfect crisp focus um, when you're when you're using a, a manual focus uh, on your lens, which is what I usually do. The second downside is that wide angle lenses for these cameras that have the Micro Four Thirds sensor and the two x crop factor are very expensive (laughs) Um, older manual lenses uh, they they don't give you the same wide angle perspective because of this uh, smaller image sensor and this 2x crop factor so this basically means that when I put a 20 millimeter lens on my camera the angle of view that I get is the equivalent of what I would see with a 40 millimeter lens on a film camera or a camera with a full frame image sensor so you can understand how this would make it difficult to find wide-angle lenses. Camera companies have had to design lenses specifically for this system that have small focal distances to allow users, users to get that wide-angle perspective. And these new wide-angle lenses uh, can be extremely expensive. I've been saving up uh, to, to purchase Panasonic's ultra-wide-angle zoom lens for a while now. It, it, it costs almost a $1,000. <laughs> Now, I can't move on to our shooting technique section without mentioning a few particularly interesting new camera options that have had a dramatic impact on the market and shifted things significantly in the DSLR video revolution. The Blackmagic camera is a large image sensor camera designed specifically for video. They call it a cinema camera because it is designed to replicate the look of a film-based movie camera. Now, Canon has also introduced a whole new line of cinema cameras within the past two years, but there are a few things that make the Blackmagic camera really stand out. And the first is the cost. Canon's line of cinema cameras are prohibitively expensive for most folks who are just starting out in the world of videography, whereas the Blackmagic cameras are actually quite reasonably priced. Uh, Second is the options for compression of the output files on the Blackmagic camera. While Canon cinema cameras have basically the same options for output files as their traditional DSLR bodies, uh sort of the standard H264 format, uh Blackmagic cameras have the option of recording to raw DNG files. While shooting raw video isn't the best option in many circumstances uh, because it takes up a lot of memory and space on your SD card, it is very cool to have this option on a camera. Um, until the release of the Blackmagic camera, you would have had to spend tens of thousands of dollars on a video camera to get this specific feature. Um, and now you can buy a Blackmagic pocket camera um, that that records to raw DNG files for less than $1,000. Um these cameras also give you the option of recording to ProRes 422 files, which, which I see as, as preferable over the, the H.264 format, although it will take up a bit more space than the H.264 um, files on your card. So the Blackmagic cameras come with all of these amazing features right out of the box, but there's another option for folks who are looking to shoot raw video, and that is Magic Lantern. Magic Lantern is an open-source alternative operating system for older model Canon DSLRs. This is definitely something that will void the warranty on your camera, uh, but it can allow you to shoot super high-quality raw video with that older Canon DSLR that you have laying around, which is pretty amazing. Uh, Magic Lantern also has a bunch of other improvements on the standard operating system of your DSLR, uh, basically providing options that are standard on most dedicated video cameras, such as focus and exposure assist. Um, And these are not automatic functions, but options to assist with uh, manual focus and exposure adjustments that are standard on many video cameras. Um, This is pretty amazing, given given that you could jump onto Craigslist right now and find an old Canon T2i selling for between $200 and $300 um, and then load free third-party software onto it and have a video camera that shoots raw video. Um, and as I said before, you know, up until just a few years ago, you would have had to spend tens of thousands of dollars to find a camera that uh, uh, outputs raw video. Um, and now at this point, you could spend $200 and have that same option. Um, While this is probably not the best option for a newcomer to the world of wildlife videography, um, it it is an important option to be aware of as you develop your skills and start thinking about options for upgrading your equipment, uh, especially if you're on a tight budget. So the bottom line here is if you're just getting started and you already have a DSLR that is capable of shooting video, I would say stick with it. Um, and maybe buy an inexpensive consumer-level camcorder to supplement that if you feel that that's necessary for your shooting style. But, of course, having the right equipment does not equate to capturing high-quality, compelling footage. While it is important to have the right tools, it is how you use those tools that will really make your story come alive. Now, assuming that you already put the work into creating your story outline— And if you haven't already, definitely check out uh, episode nine of the EOC podcast, where we talk about story outline. I would say that there are two critically important steps to take to ensure that you capture the footage necessary to tell your story in a compelling way. Now, the first is simply the ability to recognize where you need to be to tell your story in a way that is action driven. We talked a lot about this in the episode about story outline that's episode nine of the EOC podcast, but it is one thing to create in your mind the theoretically perfect action sequence to convey a story point and it's quite another to actually make sure that you are in the right place at the right time to capture that action or that event. When shooting for documentaries, action scenes rarely play out in exactly the same way that you expect or hope them to, and the ability to recognize what is important to capture in the moment is critically important. This is a skill that is developed over time and with experience, but if you're just starting out, you should just be mentally prepared for the unexpected and be ready to capture whatever ends up happening. Our second important step to ensure that you capture everything you need or want to for an action scene is to create a shot list. You basically have to take your story outline to the next level here and do your best to envision what you want a particular action scene to look like. When you're on a run-and-gun style shoot just trying to capture as much of the action as possible, it's easy to forget about your establishing shots. Think about what shots you need or want to establish a sense of place. Maybe you want some travel shots to show viewers what it takes to get to a particular location. Maybe there's something specific within the action that you want to make sure you get some close-up shots of. Now, here's where I admit that creating shot, shot lists was something that I failed to do while shooting for Scavenger Hunt, and I regretted it. Much of the shooting I did for Scavenger Hunt was spur of the moment. I was working on the condor crew as a field biologist for much of this time, and I figured that if I missed a shot, I could always get it later. Uh, After all, I was living and working with these uh, birds, these California condors, every day. Although I did end up with plenty of footage to tell my story, it was a struggle to find the right clips to piece everything together in a coherent way. There were countless times in the editing room where I wished that I had gotten a particular shot that same day I recorded an action sequence. Instead, we ended up pulling these shots from previous shoots, and oftentimes this resulted in a less-than-ideal edit for a scene. In comparison, when shooting for our half-hour documentary, Bluebird Man, I did compile shot lists every time before heading out into the field for a day of shooting, and it is amazing the difference that this simple step made. Not only did it make the editing process a whole lot easier, but I strongly feel that it resulted in a better told and more compelling story overall. Now, I've saved what is perhaps the most important component of a successful documentary video shoot for last, and that is recording your audio. I cannot overstress the importance of good quality audio for a documentary. I believe that it is more important than your video quality. Viewers will be forgiving of lower quality video if you have a compelling story, but if you have low quality audio, you have no story. Your dialogue is what tells your story, and if folks folks can't understand what someone is saying, then your story isn't there. Uh, poor quality audio can also be very distracting, uh, I think significantly more so than lower quality images. So you really have to pay special attention to your audio. Recording high quality audio can often be a challenge, especially if you're shooting an action scene and you really need to get crisp recordings of dialogue in the field. So here are a few tips for making sure that you capture that dialogue that you need for your story when out in the field. Set up your main character with a lavalier mic. There are a couple of ways to do this when working in outdoor field conditions where a wired microphone connected directly to your camera is not an option. The first and most expensive is to buy a wireless lavalier setup. A high quality wireless lav will run you between six and eight hundred bucks, um, which is a lot, but it is a very nice tool to have in your kit. It allows you to capture your character's dialogue uh, when in the field, just like you were sitting down for an interview. Um, and it, it's also very nice to have that audio synced up with the video file right from the beginning. The second option is to buy a small field recorder. I use a Zoom H1 with a simple 1 8 inch external mic input, as well as an inexpensive wired lavalier mic. Um, I use the Audio-Technica ATR3350 lavalier mics. They're very cheap and they sound great. These two items together will run you between 100 and 150 bucks. Now, before heading out in the field, you just set up your subject with a lavalier mic, connect it to the field recorder, and then tell your subject to put the field recorder in their pocket. Make sure the levels sound good, and then you just have to remember to turn the thing on and press record before you start your shoot. An added benefit to this setup over the wireless lavalier setup is that it doesn't matter how far away your subject gets from you. You know that you'll have a good, clean audio signal no matter what, no matter where they are, uh, as long as you have enough battery power, of course, and enough space on your SD card. It's a good idea to have a shotgun mic recording audio during your shoot as well. Now, in an ideal world, you would have two people helping out with a shoot, one person in charge of video recording and one in charge of audio. If you have a dedicated person for recording audio, I would recommend the use of a field recorder. And this is an an additional field recorder in addition to the one that is sitting there in your subject's pocket connected to that lavalier mic. I use a Fostex FRLE, Uh, field recorder in situations like this it has two xlr inputs so you can connect really high quality uh, uh, microphones to this um, including a shotgun mic as well as a lavalier if need be this does create some added post-production work you have to sync your audio file up with the video but luckily for us there is new software available that automatically syncs the footage up for you meaning that the days of starting out each shot with a clapboard are over Now, if you're running a shoot by yourself, as I often do, a good option is to have a small shotgun mic attached to the top of your camera. Back in the day of tape-based video cameras, this was a big no-no since the mic would pick up the hissing and clicking of the tape motor inside the camera. But these days, digital video cameras are pretty much silent, and you can get good quality audio this way as long as you're mindful uh, to reduce the noise that you make in sort of holding and, and operating that camera. Um, I, I will stress that even if you have your subject wired up with a lavalier and a separate small field recorder, it's still a good idea to have this shotgun mic hooked up and recording. Uh, that way you have two audio options to choose from, uh, or if you forget to press record on that field recorder in your subject's pocket, as I've done a few times before, then you still have a usable audio track to work with at the end of the day. When shooting for scavenger hunt, uh, one of my first purchases was an audio field recorder, uh, which was that Fostex uh, FRLE I mentioned earlier, as well as a shotgun mic and a wired lavalier mic. This setup worked great for interviews, but for action sequences, I ran into some issues. I didn't have a way to wire up my subjects with a lavalier mic when shooting action out in the field, and for most of my shoots, I was by myself and I didn't have enough hands to lug my bulky field recorder and my high-quality shotgun mic around, so I relied on the audio from my small shotgun mic that was attached to the top of my camera. Now this was a decent mic, the kind that plugs directly into the eighth inch external mic input on the camera, Um, but as I mentioned earlier, I was using a tape-based camcorder, which means that the high-frequency hum of the tape motor was ever-present in the audio mix. Because this was the only audio track that I recorded for many of my action sequences in the film, we had to figure out a way to eliminate this very distracting background noise. We ended up paying someone to identify the frequencies present in this background noise and eliminate them from these audio tracks. This took many hours of work and resulted in us going over budget on our audio mix. Plus, the audio quality in these scenes was still not ideal, even after all this work was put into it. Uh, The problem was that the frequencies had to be eliminated, but this had changed the sound of the dialogue in the mix. Um, If I had used a lavalier mic connected to a smaller field recorder, as I recommend here, um, I I would have gotten a much better quality audio, um, and and I would have spent significantly less money overall. So let's recap. We've learned that there are lots of camera options out there, and that the advent of the use of the DSLR for video has dramatically changed the landscape in just a few short years. If you're just starting out as a videographer, use the camera that you have available at your disposal, if at all possible. Chances are that that DSLR you've been using to capture stills is also capable of collecting really nice video. If you're looking to move beyond the restrictions of a standard DSLR or consumer-level camcorder, think about mirrorless options, specifically the Blackmagic cameras. If you're looking to move to that next level and are on a very limited budget, do some research on the Magic Lantern operating system for older Canon DSLRs. Be sure to create a shot list before heading out into the field for a shoot. That is a must. And be flexible when you're out there shooting in the field and be ready to capture the unexpected. And lastly, don't forget about audio. Have a plan for how you will capture high-quality audio when you're out in the field. So there it is, part two in my transition from field biologist to filmmaker. This was a dramatic step for me, since I had practically zero production experience when I jumped into shooting for my film Scavenger Hunt. Writing the story outline seemed pretty easy for me in in comparison, because I had to develop this whole new skill set just to start shooting. I learned a lot of hard lessons while shooting for scavenger hunt, and and I continue to learn lessons while out on shoots today. So I guess I would say that as important as it is to be prepared before heading out into the field, the lessons that you learn from experience, they're going to stick around with you a whole lot longer than theoretical knowledge will. At a certain point, you just have to jump in, get out there, and start shooting. You're going to make mistakes. That's inevitable. But hopefully you'll learn from them and be better prepared next time around. And, of course, if you have any questions about any of the topics that I've been discussing here, you can head on over to our show notes page for this episode and leave a comment. I'll be reading all these comments and doing my best to respond to any questions that folks might have. You can find those show notes at wildlensinc.org slash EOC17. That's wildlensinc.org slash EOC17. We are also in the process of designing a brand new how to section on the Eyes on Conservation website, which will include a way for listeners to pitch story ideas for wildlife or conservation themed documentaries directly to our team of producers at Eyes on Conservation. Keep your eye on our brand new website eyesonconservation.org for this new section and the opportunity to pitch your story to us many of our eyes on conservation videos come directly from our growing community of aspiring wildlife filmmakers and each year we select a handful of these story ideas to develop into eyes on conservation docs which are released as a part of the series online and also scream at film festivals education centers and in classrooms all around the world If there are folks out there who haven't yet seen my feature length film, Scavenger Hunt, which I talk about throughout this episode, um, you can watch it at scavengerhuntfilm.com or head over to the show notes page for this episode and I'll include a link to watch the film there. I'll also have some links to additional resources up on the show notes page. So if you're cu- curious to learn more about the video and audio gear options that I discussed here in the episode, definitely head on over and I'll have links to uh, some of that information. Again, those show notes are wildlandsinc.org slash EOC17. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Human.